Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue and back again for another episode of Voices of the Valley with my good friend and partner, Candace Wilson. And Candace, this one finishes up the year and we have a special guest to do that. So good to see you. And uh, Always a pleasure, Dennis. I'm happy to be here. And I'm excited for a number of reasons to welcome today's guest, who is at the moment the uh, CEO of the Central Valley Foundation and the former mayor of Fresno, Ashley Swearingen. Ashley, thanks for making some time in your schedule. I see the Christmas tree in the background, so it is the season. Oh, happy to be here. And I'm excited for a couple of reasons, because as we were chatting before we came on air, I think some of the things that uh, you're currently involved are really important for the industry. But then I also get to throw in, as a former mayor, you're one of my idols, because I heard so much about you and what a terrific mayor you were. And having met you a few times, I think it's pretty, uh, I'm, I'm just delighted to have a chance to to visit with you. And as I tell people, after every time I encounter you, Thank God I never had to run against her because she would. <laughs> I don't think I could ever. I don't think I could ever beat her. She she was. She's done a great job, and you and you've had a great post mayoral career that I think is going to help realize some real positive benefits for our industry. So we're glad you're here. Thank you, Dennis. And uh, what we typically like to do is just uh, have our. Uh, guests talk a little bit about their journey to what they're currently doing today, but uh, it seems to me there's a little bit of a kind of a two-step process in that journey and that part of that journey led you to the mayor's office. And then I, I think the mayor's office probably informed your even further your relationship with agriculture and kind of led to a, a really nice success story we're, we're going to want to talk about. So let's start with uh, the journey to the mayoral office. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, thanks for the opportunity just to connect and to talk about our journeys. I mean, it's this is an exciting time that we're living in. I think there's a lot of potential and opportunity to get big breakthrough on issues that have held back places like the Salinas Valley and the Central Valley, but we're perilously close to not making those breakthroughs and having some pretty bad stuff happen. So it's a good time to be in the civic arena. So I started my professional journey just planning to be in business. You know, I always just kind of wanted to have a job and work and contribute to a family income and take care of kids and do what I saw my grandparents and my parents do and never anticipated any sort of public or political life. I was raised by an American history teacher and a Southern Baptist preacher, however. So now you can see a little bit of the strands of DNA um, were in there and um, in terms of like community work and having a focus on the collective and how we get better together. But I landed in Fresno as a teenager. So I'm not native to California. I'm from the Southern Midwest. And my dad moved around a bunch for different jobs. And we landed in Fresno when I was finishing high school. And I literally thought I was like in a foreign land, like compared to Arkansas and Oklahoma and Texas, like Fresno is a desert, except it's irrigated. You know, like it's just this sort of totally flat place. I'm used to like hills and mountains and all that, whatever. So as a teenager, I was just like, man, get me back to to the Midwest, you know, where my grandparents were and cousins and family connection. But I ended up getting a scholarship, a full ride to go to Fresno State, an academic full ride. And it was at a time in my family's lives that, you know, my parents were like, we can't afford to send you away. So like, you got to stay home for college. And if you at least can do a couple of years at junior college, then maybe we could afford to send you somewhere. But I got this full ride. So I took it. And that was really the beginning of, I think, my connection to the place that now I have called home since 1987, and that is Fresno in the Central Valley. Um, there's something about where you go to college and, you know, particularly 
in the Central Valley, like, you know, and, and this is a little bit of a longer answer, but I'll finish the response to your question here. How I got involved in community work, which led to doing the mayor's office and then now the work I do at the Community Foundation. Honestly, it's just feeling connected to what people, families were experiencing in my community of Fresno. In my family's life growing up, there were times when, you know, my dad would lose a job. There was some economic uncertainty. It was very terrifying, even though my parents had planned. They were college educated. They had a savings account. Like we were fine. But as a kid, I didn't know that. And so I just experienced like some economic shock that really rocked me as a kid and feeling like I don't know what's going to happen to us. And um, looking back on it and talking to my parents about it, they're like, what we worried about? Everything was fine. But again, I didn't know that. And so I land in this place called Fresno, finish my undergraduate degree at Fresno State, get involved in the local civic community. And I'm hearing things at chambers of commerce meetings like, yo, we've got 15% unemployment, 18% unemployment when I graduated college in 1994, but it's okay. It's just an ag economy. And like, you know, when agri-production goes up, you know, unemployment goes down and it's just, it, it's all okay. And I remember looking at the data in the 90s, though, and learning like that's actually not true anymore. While that explained past cycles of high unemployment in the Central Valley, it didn't like by that point in the 90s, year round, we were always at least twice the national employment average and the state unemployment average. And so as a young person, just thinking about wanting to have a job and be able to take care of a family, I find myself in this place that had a really rotten economy. And I'm thinking, my God, like I know what it's like to have a family member go without income for a short period of time and be able to rebound. And now I'm living in a place where tens of thousands of households are experiencing chronic levels of unemployment, multi-generational, like this, like honestly, it just was an overwhelming feeling of like, I know what it's like to taste a little bit of that. What must people's experiences be like that are going on second, third generation of just like of economic struggle. So I honestly, I just was compelled to volunteer and try to do something to fix the economy. And that's where it all started. And um, from, you know, volunteering on the side with Chambers of Commerce events and things related to business growth, job growth, that led me to more work in policy and then ultimately running for mayor. And then a lot of what we do at the Community Foundation is pursuing the same thing, economic mobility for the residents of the Central Valley. Well, you know, it's interesting because in many respects, one of the things you and I shared was I used to tell people, you know, the reality is in Salinas, our economy is in the valley. The city's just where we keep score, and whether it's sales tax, property tax, and, and that sort of thing. And Fresno, uh, you, you know, and from a WGA standpoint, which is, you know, kind of our vantage point, you have some 27, 28 communities surrounding Fresno. So you were the mayor of a city that much of your economic influence was technically outside of the city. If I, Absolutely. If, and so how do you deal with that? And like I said, when we got started, you know, we and ag, like you said, things are different. We we don't live in a vacuum anymore if we ever did. Well, I, I mean, that's such a great point, Dennis. And I wish that like all of my colleagues who are in city governments today in the central San Joaquin Valley, like we could quickly just impart what you just said. So I actually started, I worked at Fresno State for a time as the Director of Community and Economic Development. And from that capacity, our focus was on the regional economy. You're absolutely right to point this out. Like, economies happen at the regional scale, you know, and, and you can think about that as like, as far as a person might drive to go to work. So in our part of the state, we think of that as about a four county area, Fresno, Madera, Tulare, Kings, maybe that's pushing out a little bit, you know, into Merced, maybe a little bit into North Kern, but for the most part, like that's kind of the chunk of the regional economy. And of course that region is connected to regions all around it. So it's just like, 
you got to think at that scale. And what are the institutions that operate at a regional scale? Well, they're higher education. It's community colleges and higher education and trade associations. And like, if you're wanting to influence and lever up growth at the regional economy, you're tending to work with in, in that kind of a space. A city, you know, in California, cities are only in charge of two things. They're complicated things. They're big things, but only two things. And one is public safety. So cities generally are tending to the police and fire service needs of their community, number one. And then number two, the built environment, you know, the physical aspects of the city, the neighborhoods, the streets, the traffic lights, the toilets, whether or not they flush the, you know. So what we used to talk a lot about at the city of Fresno was like, look, as a city agency, there's not much that we have direct jurisdiction and resources over that's going to influence the regional economy, but our physical place has to be amazing because th- what we contribute to the overall regional economy, we contribute talent, we contribute having wonderful neighborhoods that support great schools, being a place where people want to be because those folks are the ones who are then every day going on and working in the regional economy. And in Fresno, where two thirds of our neighborhoods are at or below the poverty line and experiencing tremendous disinvestment, we had this massive focus on reinvesting in underserved physical neighborhoods and trying to revitalize like major swaths of our city. So that was our contribution to economic development was like paying attention to our physical space. And then the other thing I'll mention in the case of Fresno, and this isn't necessarily true for other cities everywhere, but in the case of Fresno, we also sit on top of you know, this incredible aquifer and have contributed to massive amounts of groundwater overdrafting because we have 283 wells across the city footprint. And instead of building the infrastructure to clean and use the surface water that the city of Fresno has access to, nobody ever wanted to raise the water rates to build that infrastructure. So we just kept pulling up all out of the ground. Well, in that case, now we are directly impacting the regional economy and all of our neighbors that are you know, food producers who in many cases around here only have underground plumbing, they don't have surface water. So all of a sudden, the city of Fresno is a major culprit in like the most significant issue that is impacting the regional economy. So in that case, we did bite the bullet, go through multiple lawsuits and like fight like hell to actually raise the utility rate so that we could build the water infrastructure needed to get off of groundwater onto surface water and in that way contribute to groundwater recharge and support the regional economy. Candace, now can you see why I'd never want to have to run against her? Yeah, I think she may kick your butt, Dennis. (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) Maybe. And you know how much I love you. Yes, Um, I know it. Noted. Okay, so it sounds like, Ashley, one of the big successes was some of the adjustments that you made to water. And I'm curious, what other wins did you guys have along the way, specifically as it relates to, you know, agriculture and the industry that we serve? And then how have you continued to build upon those in your current role as well? Well, I think, okay, as it relates to agriculture, there were two things that we were aggressively fighting for. And, oh my gosh, man, it was like, it was a tough, tough fight. The one I've already talked about, and that was becoming more drought proof as a city, not just for the residents of our community and, you know, three and four generations from now, but realizing the impact that the city's overdraft had on our our neighbors and their ability to pump during dry seasons and all that for ag. So that was a really big thing. But the other thing was our use of land and like the city of Fresno. Oh my gosh, it's 110 square mile place. And so Over the last 60 years, the city of Fresno has taken out 60,000 acres of farmland by itself. And remember, in the Central Valley, there are, I think, 63 cities 
Fresno was probably the biggest culprit of like massive, like kind of runaway sprawl on every boundary. There were no physical boundaries to the city of Fresno, except our neighboring Clovis to the Northeast. And then like for decades, there was no physical boundary to the North of Fresno until we hit the San Joaquin River. You know, we had to go way far out to hit any kind of, you know, stopping point in the West and in, in South Fresno. So when you look at the maps of Fresno before World War II and you see the size of the footprint, like in the first 70 years of the city's history, and then you look at like the next 60 years, I mean, we just like blew up everywhere. Because as, you know, your listeners know, ag land is flat, easy to convert to residential development and historically not really valuable. And so kind of like the joke is every farmer, you know, is a developer in waiting in Fresno. And so, you know, we were very concerned about taking farmland out of production. And so we fought really hard to adopt a land use plan that didn't expand the city's boundaries for the first time since the 60s. Like every single general plan the city passed was like, yeah, we'll take this, we'll take that, you know, like just keep expanding our boundaries. And so for the first time, we held the line on our sphere of influence. And that was really unpopular with home builders. What a shock, she said with some cynicism and sarcasm in her voice. What a shock that the home builders fought us like crazy on that. But the farmers were with us. And we had a lot of interesting coalitions that came together, residents and community advocates who were really concerned about underinvested neighborhoods. Like the more we spread out, the fewer resources we have to try to rebuild neighborhoods that are older. And so there were a lot of community advocates that were in alignment with our long-term land use plan and like focusing more on what we already have. Like we have enough room for the housing that we like, we don't need to expand that much more. I know that's like heresy for some people to hear, but that's really the truth. Like we just don't need that much more land. We want to save it for productive farmland. So the farmers and get this, the farmers and the community advocates aligned and supported this vision for our general plan. And then that was enough sort of political machinations to meet and exceed the power that the home builders were bringing to try to stop this work. So, yeah, those are the big things that we thought about at the city related to Al. Ashley, I think you raise an interesting point. And before we kind of transition to what you're currently doing and uh, your recent success with the Fresno Drive grant, I'm going to guess uh, there were other, for lack of a better phrase, rural urban issues like in our neck of the woods, you know, you build a school and then all of a sudden, you know, the farmers are the, you know, like, hey, they use pesticides and we want to know about that. Did, did you find yourself uh, or do you, do you just have some general observations? Because one of the things I, I think about is, uh, you know, and without meaning at all to be political, in, me- in many respects, we still haven't really... You know, this rural urban thing really isn't, uh, you know, it's an ongoing issue. Let's put it that way. So creating the coalitions like you did is certainly something to be commended for. Yeah, I think that is a really good thing to point out. I, We had a little bit of friction around where growth was happening close to farmland. But also keep in mind, I was the mayor during the Great Recession. So five of my eight years, we had just like plummeting revenues and like the seem to be no into the you know floor falling out from underneath us on like our, our budget cuts and that sort of thing so really home building did slow down tremendously so our battles and work around like hey let's hold the line on our sphere was more about that policy and adopting that policy as opposed to now we're swinging hammers and we're right next to you know farmland and having to deal with right, that, okay. that did start to happen a little in my later time in office when buildings started picking up but i think what you're pointing out is like Think about it. There is no civic entity that forces urban and rural to be at the same table. There's no place where that happens. Like city councils and city governments are focused within their sphere and, you know, maybe land that they might want to annex. County governments, like, 
I don't know, in our neck of the woods, seem to not want to have anything to do with the cities and really aren't even that active with the pesticide issues of those are regulated by the state. It's just like it takes a lot of intentional. You have to create reasons to bring people together to deal with these issues comprehensively. Well, and I think you've been pretty good at that. So let's shift gears to a, a very positive outlook on the future and your work as with the Central Valley Foundation and, you know, that exciting day in October where you got to stand there with a group of folks, which really gave testimony to how people came together around a vision. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Honestly, this last year has been such a blur. So our region came together around the Future of Food Innovation proposal. We call it F3 for short. It's one of the Fresno Drive projects, but it's so enormous. Like it's like the one thing focused on kind of like the big regional economy. So it really stands on its own and pulls together um, Fresno State, UC Merced, eight community colleges, a number of trade associations, including Western Growers, who's been super supportive and active, a number of community groups. And I should mention, you see Ag and Natural Resources, the state, uh, Food and Ag, Secretary Ross, and then community groups that work with small farmers and micro food entrepreneurs. And anyway, the whole point of F3 is to set a table big enough for every aspect of the food economy to have a seat at that table and work together to articulate and push forward on like a 20-year vision of how do we make all these things work together. There are people at this table who historically have been on opposite sides of a lot of policy battles and even legal battles, but there's something in there for everyone. And I'll I'll say it this way, like the larger industry partners obviously are fighting for survival right now. And I think there are community interests that are starting to say, you know, COVID really laid bare our nation's food supply, you know, is quite vulnerable. And it really is the case that we need to maintain an independent food supply. We need to do that in California. We need to do it across the country. So there's like an allowance for like, okay, maybe we don't hate you so much. Um, <laughs> but what we're tired of is that sort of like the big get bigger and there's no room for smaller farms and people who are working on the farm today, for instance, farm workers to convert to becoming small farmers. Like where is the upward mobility and the trajectory for people who are not already the top dogs? And that's a super legitimate point. And so, you know, with F3, like at every step of the way, what we try to do at the Community Foundation and bringing people together is like really listen to what people are saying and not discount them before they even walk in the room. And I know it's hard because, again, there are a lot of times when people are just fighting for a particular policy win. They're not being fair in the way they're treating the opponents to their point of view. And there's a lot of hard feelings, but there needs to be a point in time and a space where, you know, groups of people can say like, OK, in my case, you know, coming from an economic development and a business perspective, I have to make myself sit and listen and understand why an environmental justice group or a community group is assailing this body of work. Because most likely there's some legitimate points in there. So I got to sit and listen and hear it and then say like, yeah, 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 you're right. We don't as a community work to make sure farm workers have a path to become farm owners, that small farmers have a path to grow their business. If that's the agenda, like that's a positive agenda I can get behind. Let's incorporate it into this bigger regional economic development and innovation program we put together. So that's really how F3 came together is like fitting all the pieces of the regional food system and this enormous like international food system that exists in the Central Valley, fitting that together, finding out the common interests, finding out the common challenges, and then asking for investment to address those challenges. So we thankfully, it worked. We won. We were the largest grant winner in the US with 65.1 million. I think it's pretty cool that the Department of Commerce there, you know, they had their range of options They and they funded 21 regions across the country. And I think three or four of them are food related. And this is the only California grant that they funded, but like they're funding aerospace and biotech and engineering and manufacturing, but their top 
award winner from the Department of Commerce is the Central Valley's F3 proposal. And that says a lot because normally you might see that out of USDA, but it's not normally the case that the Department of Commerce prioritizes food and ag. And they did in this particular competition. So I think that's pretty cool for all of us. That is quite the success. I'm curious, how will the program be measured and what specific milestones are ahead of you guys? Yeah. So the program is really like three major components of work. And then each of these three have like dozens and dozens of things that filter into kind of hitting our big milestones in these big three areas. So the first is climate smart food and ag technology innovation with a major focus on the mechanics and the machinery needed to grow food sustainably. We hear a lot from growers and, you know, Western growers has been really the tip of the spear in like calling out and helping like your members are the ones who are already innovating. And if, every time I hear one of your members say like, yeah, I had to go around the world to buy this device, this robot, this te- technology. I mean, I went to France, I went to Chile and I'm like poking my eye out. Are you kidding me? Why are we not inventing that? in the Central Valley, manufacturing it here. We have all the customers right at at our disposal. So the first big focus is on what's the equipment and the technology that drives that equipment for food production over the next 20, 25, 50 years. That's headed by our higher education institutions. They've got specific milestones they have to hit, like 75 new projects, inventions, 40% commercialization of those inventions, like attracting another $250 million of private investment behind this public investment. So they're very specific innovation connected milestones they have to hit the other another major component is as i mentioned earlier like small farms micro food enterprises so there's a lot of metrics around how many small farmers are helped we want to make sure those small farmers have equal access to this new technology that's invented in the i create component of the work so like adoption of that technology not just for the big guys but for the small guys too and the percent of business growth that we see for small farmers And then lastly, workforce. And the sort of big goal in the workforce development area is to build a system that is shared by eight community colleges. And there's like, imagine like a universal pass. If you're a person in the farm and food industry today, maybe you're frontline with some additional training and upskilling, you can more than double your salary. We're hearing, you guys hear that all the time. We need higher end workers, et cetera. There's more pay available. Well, it's pretty tough to get the training you need because our training system's very disjointed particularly making it hard to serve more migratory workforce. So all eight community colleges in this huge, like 20,000 square mile area, all having a consistent curriculum. If you take a class at one place, you're going to get credit over here, actually providing the training on the employer sites, et cetera. So all that to say, building a regional workforce pipeline that can annually upskill 8,400 workers, not just do it once, for the grant, but like, you know, train at least 8,400 people in the next four years, but build a system that can repeat at the same levels every year. So it's just a huge lift, huge lift. But I've never seen this kind of talent rise up for this type of work in the Central Valley. I've been doing this stuff for 25 years. The talent is all new levels and the commitment and the size of the coalition makes me optimistic we can do it. You know, I often tell guests before we spend some time with them, I Googled you. So when I did that, you know, I came across one of your uh, speeches, I think, uh, as the greater Sacramento area was getting started. And so it was, uh, it might have even been on YouTube. And But I was struck by you, you talked about managing expectations and how long things actually take. You know, you're really embarking on a fairly lengthy journey, particularly in terms of uh, setting these systems. So how do you do that? You, you know, because I, I think back to all the excitement that's around the room in October, and now the journey begins. How, how do you manage expectations? Well, I um, sometimes it's just nice to, you know, not know what you're getting into. So 
you know, when I think back to various iterations of like community and economic development work I've done over the last 25 years, like my first step into this arena was helping to start a nonprofit business incubator in 1998 in Fresno. And it was in the middle of the, you know, dot com and the, you know, IT expansion that was, you know, emanating out of the Silicon Valley and like sweeping the world. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we just need some startups. And then we're going to have a better, you know, em- employment opportunities at Fresno. And I remember thinking all we needed was a really great incubator program. You know, oh my God, like if I only knew back then what I knew now, I never would have started. So I I think to some extent it's okay not to be thinking about like, whoa, it's really going to take us what we thought would take like five or 10 years is actually going to take 40 years. I don't think everybody has to walk around thinking about it. I do tee that up for people because I think it's the truth. The depth of the challenges that we experience in the Central Valley, it is generational change that we are calling for and working towards. And we need to be honest about that because we need to be in touch with the realities of how bad we have let things get. I mean, it's really heartbreaking when you like look at the data as to how have we let ourselves become a place where we're the least racially inclusive economy in all of California and almost the worst in the entire United States. That's Fresno. How did that happen? So anyway, we've got to be in touch with how big the challenges are because we have to size the solutions to actually make a difference at scale. And so I did start talking about this longer time horizon as I was wrapping up at City Hall. And I think another value in like, not only is it the truth. And so like, we ought to just like settle in and prepare for this kind of big, long work and think at a bigger scale. But also I think it's important that we're all called to be stewards of the time and the resources we have and to realize it's not all about us. It's not all about our moment in the sun and our time on this planet. We are working for and towards things that will benefit people we will never know and generations we will not live to be a part of. And I think it takes that kind of connection to stewardship to really do the hard work, you know, and and particularly when working with private sector interests, which are good and positive, and we need private sector to flourish, but also the private sector is particularly prone to thinking that it's all about them. And just the data in history have, have not proven it to be the case that as long as business is fine, everybody else is fine. That's not the case. It's not true in Fresno. You know, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of truth there, but it's not the whole truth. And so like bringing these coalitions of people together, we have to challenge ourselves to think about, we're doing this for like people that we don't know, people we won't live to see and be stewards of the future. And so we have to think longer term. So that's another reason why I like to put it out there. Like, yeah, you know what? I may not see what I feel like I've worked for, for a long time. I may not cross the finish line. What am I going to do about that? Am I going to be pissy about it and walk away and, you know, like, I don't know, not contribute. No, I want to do everything I can for people I don't know who are going to live on this planet in the future. And the more we can like that, we are a bridge generation. I think we're at a bridge point in history. And if we can't build that bridge, then I do fear for, for future generations. So anyway, elevate to be better stewards of the future is a big part of this. I'm curious when you talk about, and Dennis and I have spent so much time working on different projects around automation and stuff like this. So I'm curious what other partnerships exist to help bring some of those goals to fruition? Yeah, I I mean, I really feel like you guys have been such pioneers in that work for, for sure. I think, and I think your vision is so big there. I think we have kind of a, we can contribute to that in a, in a smaller way, but the the research and the focus at UC Merced and Fresno State and UC Agri Natural Resources and the partners working on that innovation component of F3 are very focused on, as I mentioned, the mechanics, which includes automation. 
and you know the equipment needed to grow efficiently and sustainably. The way in which we've navigated the work so far, as I mentioned before, is to make sure that the research agenda is set not just by the large actors who already can afford whatever they need to afford to become more profitable, but that the public and the community interests that are being invested in ag machinery and equipment, that it includes a focus on, well, what do smaller players need? And what is the intersection between things that are pretty universal and can be universally adopted among all sizes of food producers? So that's been an important thing. Like, we, you know, we've got a lot of small farm advocates and organizations that are at the table helping to set that agenda. So it's making room for that, you know, making room for different size players to work together. And then um, there's a big concern, understandably, there's a big concern that, okay, well, that means we're thinning out the workforce and people are going to go without jobs. And that's a reality that is already on us. You know, the the lowest paid workers are already being impacted by automation. And so one of the commitments we made is that at least half of the training slots that are funded by F3, half are going to incumbent workers. It's not always the community college's nature to vote them all. They're kind of always oriented towards the up and coming and emerging workforce and that K-12, you know, student, et cetera. And so we've said, no, those 8,400 slots, you got to build a system that ensures at least half of those are targeting the folks who are making 16 and $18,000 a year, who are most at risk for automation. They are the ones who we want to have access to training and upskilling so that they can go from hopefully $18,000 a year to $36,000 a year and 60, you know, like the pay gets better, the more skill you have. And so committing our workforce resources towards the people who are already impacted and who may be increasingly impacted, that's part of the way we crafted the program to listen to the real concerns that people have. Well, you know, I was struck when we, you know, when we had the gathering in Fresno several weeks ago that, uh, to your point, uh, there was a young woman representing the farm workers. And, you know, we, from a Western grower standpoint, we, we fundamentally believe that, you know, we have an aging workforce and in order to make sure we can you know, alleviate the potential. Part of the food insecurity deal is making sure we get the crop out of the ground. So we think automation is a good thing from an economic standpoint, better working conditions, the more skills, better wages, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the the, uh, young lady articulated very clearly, and I was kind of struck by it when she said, we understand this is going to happen, but we want to understand what's happening. And that kind of opened my eyes that we need to figure that, you know, how what, what's our strategy also. But what I was struck by, she was, you know, because the job wanted science are posted all over the place because you're trying to find help. But the best near-term strategy to deal with employment is upskilling the current workforce and that we have to take that really seriously. So it's terrific to hear you talk about, okay, we're going to train 8,400, but half of that number needs to be upskilling the current workforce because that's the quickest fix we're going to have for our labor challenges. But like I say, I, I was just really, really struck by, you know, could you take the trouble to please explain to us what this is all about, because we're ready for it, but we just want to know. And I thought that was a big yeah. message. You know, I, I so appreciate you lifting that up, Dennis. Like, I think that's exactly it. You know, a lot of the, I imagine sort of getting through an obstacle course is, you know, a lot of what community and economic development is and these sharp, you know, there's these sharp points that you're trying to navigate around. So you don't, you know, cut a gash in your side or whatever. I feel like a lot of those kind of historic points of conflict and, okay, we don't really get it. So we're all just going to lock in and fight each other. That's what we're in the middle of trying to reconcile through. And as we've been through, so the F3 project came about as a result of Fresno Drive. So we started that in 2019. We did like two years of meetings with people who had very different points of view about what the focus should be 
whether or not there should be a focus on food and ag production. And if so, what should be the what should be resource in the Central Valley and be a part of F3? And there was more agreement than I thought. And it was because it was exactly what you said. It was, you know, farm worker organizations and um, worker voice groups coming to the table and, and farm workers themselves saying things like you just said, you know, we had one one lady who was very instrumental in shaping the work named Alma. And Alma was saying like, hey, my kids, she was saying this in Spanish, but translated. And what I heard her say was, my kids keep telling me that I need to get trained to drive some of the equipment because I'm aging and I can't keep doing what I'm doing. And like, they tell me I should do this and I think I'm ready and da, da, da. But it was just that, that whole thing of like, we're just, you know, all these institute, like we fail to connect with one another. And that's something I've definitely learned from the community advocates is a big critique and thing that they're constantly pointing out is like, who's in the room when this is being talked about? You are you don't have people in the room who represent those who you say you're trying to benefit and you've got to stop doing that. That is true. And that is right. So we really try to make, you know, go about things differently with our work with Drive and with F3. Plenty of stuff to criticize. Absolutely not perfect but we have a different approach today than we did in earlier times in my career. Dennis, I know we're coming up at time, but Ashley, another topic that we talk about a lot is there's so much progress and you've outlined, highlighted so much of that today as well. Tons of progress is being made in the state, specifically in your county and in agriculture. How do we share those wins? How do we have a different kind of conversation about agriculture and just kind of be loud and proud about the great work that's being done? Well, I mean, gosh, that's a great question. I think a frustration of probably every community that sees positive movement and struggles to make sure that residents can connect with like how things are changing in in, in a good way. I think that the more we can put on display the small farms, their stories, the really interesting products and produce that they have to offer, the more we can put that on display in a way that is really accessible to members of the public. Like for instance, one aspect of our vision, it wasn't funded yet. We didn't include it in the federal grant we just got, but there's a lot of interest in just having the most beautiful and cool like public space where, you know, produce is available, you know, it's essentially a really souped up like public market. Like Fresno is constantly laying claim to being like the food producing, you know, capital of the world. And there's like farmers markets here and there, but we don't have a stinking public market anywhere. And then we're like, huh, I wonder why people don't like, you know, feel better about what's happening all around us hello, like, let's make it accessible to people, you know? So we'd love to see a really cool space in our downtown close to the high-speed rail station that is an attraction, a public amenity that small farmers can, you know, have access to bigger markets, um, have an opportunity to aggregate their food supply, tell the stories like crazy, get people from the private sector who know how to do storytelling so well, like, we need to put them in charge of telling the story of food and where food comes from. And this is not just the Central Valley or Salinas Valley imperative. I think it's a national imperative all about just like, again, hello, we've been through a global pandemic. We know what it's like to not produce masks in our own state. We know what it's like to not have enough ventilators. We know what it's like to manufacture all kinds of pharmaceuticals overseas. Do any of us want to ship any more of our food production outside of the boundaries of the United States of America? I know of no one. Like it is not a good idea. So, man, we got to connect people to this story of fresh, quality, healthy food. Where does it come from? It comes from California. And we're in California right here in the middle of the state. Well, you know, I'm I'm looking at a quote of yours. There needs to be a dedicated spot on the globe where you can point to and say, that's where they're figuring out how to uh, grow food sustainably. And I took a tour of uh, the building you have in mind. And you know what I'm 
struck by listening to your talk. I don't know if you're familiar with the Italy concepts. Uh, and, yeah. and you know, so we we just need a fresh Italy and look, and it looks like you're up to bat first. I hope so. I mean, that's that is on my wish list for things I want to see before I retire or die, which I'll probably die working. So I guess it's the latter. But like I, I'm 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 crossing things off the list, so that's the good news. But that is definitely one thing that I I mean I, I'm I'm hopeful that we might even see some funds get committed for that here in the next year or two. And there's some exciting private sector partners who are stepping up, and hopefully this time next year we can report on some tangible progress on that vision. Candice, I, I uh, like we talked about at the beginning, I, a very interesting and uh, different in a great way guest. Any any final uh, questions for our friend? No, I just, I one of the things that I really loved is some of the simplicity of the answers of sharing the work that agriculture is doing. Like we, not everything needs to be on a grand, grand scale. We're talking about being excited and proud of the food, sharing our stories, just, you know, we we need to be willing to have just the dialogue and be proud about what we're doing. So yeah, it was a great interview. Thank you so much, Ashley. Ashley, I want to give you the uh, final word. Any Anything we uh, missed or you'd like to uh, communicate to our audience? Uh, there, We hope there are a few of your constituents uh, or former constituents uh, and even current as uh, with the Central Valley Foundation, because uh, I know you've got a lot of ag support for all of that. So any, uh, any final words before we finish this episode, which will close out 2022? Well, I think, you know, just to put a bow around it, food is culture, culture is people, people are stories. The more that we experience food together with different cultures and different people being a part of conversations about, you know, our shared future, food is literally at the middle of the table when we talk about and think about our shared future. So I would encourage your um, listeners, first of all, stay encouraged, keep doing what you're doing. There are people that are not in the sector that see and value what you're doing. And also be open to conversations with people who maybe you have not historically thought would be open to finding a common path. I, I just think that's that's the future. We, we're all going to have to learn how to reconcile and be flexible in listening to people we've not listened to in the past. And so I think Western Growers models that. And I just want to encourage you to continue. Well, we appreciate that. We appreciate your time and certainly want to wish you and your family a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And We'll look forward to uh, continuing to support the uh, F3 uh, grant and the Fresno Drive as the new year begins. So uh, thanks very much for your time. And Candace, should we come back and do it again next year? We sure should. All right. Well, Merry uh, Happy. I think we're at the Happy New Year point. We passed Christmas the last episode. So thanks again, Ashley. It was great to see you. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in Ag Technology, Food Safety, and Plant Science, you can visit ReedleyCollege.edu.